0: My big boots are there for a reason. They're a motivating factor.
1: <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to another podcast. My name is Daly. I'm here together with Ikra and our guest, Dr. Mike Field. Welcome. Thank you. And we always start these interview questions with a very simple question: How are you
0: doing? Well, <laughs> uh, well, well. <laughs> um, I'm not teaching at the moment. At this very moment. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. <laughs> um, Second question, we always ask rapid fire questions. Um, first question camping or hotel?
0: Five star hotel
1: I did not expect that
0: <laughs> Yeah, well he said, he said quick answer, but um, I'm both I Beach or forest? The forest, because I spend too much time on the beach at the moment I live 400 meters from the beach uh, What's your favorite food? Champagne
1: Fair, yeah, you have a favorite brand? The Widow. The Widow?
0: Yeah, uh, the French speakers know what I mean.
1: (laughs) Hey Siri, what's widow in French? In French, widow is.
0: Loufoque. No. No? No. (laughs) Which one are we? Verve, cliquet. I spend my Christmas bonus on champagne. (laughs) So the kitchen behind the fridge is stacked this high with boxes of champagne. And we have a bottle every fr- Saturday night. That's a must. That's my mm-hmm. medicine.
1: Okay. And it's just a champagne or you have some little sweets oh, with it? or we have
0: food with it as well. But that's secondary. It's the champagne. It's, all right, it's, it's champagne. the whole it's process. The opening of the bottle. Pop. The puff of gases that come out. The tilting of the flue i could talk about glasses of champagne but maybe it's a bit pornographic for this interview
1: (laughs) (laughs) book or movie
0: reference book
1: uh what's your favorite (laughs) reference book
0: species plantarum 1753 Linnaeus.
1: ah yes that's a classic i guess so uh after your research in greece have you been busy with any uh recent
0: things Yeah, I think I will, the subject is research, so I say what I do research in, or my research interests are, I'm interested in mainly carpological remains, so that's the products of sex, we're dealing with seeds, fruits and other sexual structures, and their morphology, (coughs) I'm interested in that because that leads to an identification, and that opens the door to understanding the ecological tolerances of the plant represented. And if you get a lot of plants represented, you can use all that information to paint a picture of the vegetation in the environment at the time of deposition. And I'm interested in that. And I'm also interested in looking for seeds and fruits that only occur at certain time periods. So they're biostratigraphic indicators. So I'm interested in biostratigraphy. In addition, when you're understanding the assemblage, I'm inter- interested in taphonomy too, how the seeds move from the parent plant to the fossil assemblage. So, to summarise, I'm interested in morphology, identification and taxonomy, toponomy, paleoenvironmental reconstruction and biostratigraphy. And you'll say, where's the archaeology in that? Well, of course, all the archaeology must be put in a paleoenvironmental and a stratigraphic context. So, all those interests add to me achieving that task and putting the archaeology into a paleo-environmental and stratigraphic context. Well what I'm doing now is difficult because with the present situation and the virus circulating we've been, our activity has been restricted quite dramatically. I have thesis students, they are very demanding, so I've had to come up with a project um, that doesn't involve samples from an archaeological site because I haven't been excavating for over a year. So what we're doing at the moment with Masters and bachelor students is a methodological investigation. We're in the coastal dunes of the Netherlands and we're looking at an interdune pond. <coughs> and in this setting we're taking surface sediment samples and we're looking at the vegetation around the pond. So, I mentioned taphonomy earlier on, and it's in effect, in essence, a taphonomical project. We're looking at the beginning, the vegetation, and almost the end. It's a seed bank, it's a potential plant macrofossil assemblage in the surface sediment samples, and we're comparing the composition, the species composition in the vegetation with the surface sediment sample assemblage. And this gives us an insight into bias of representation in the seminage compared with abundance in the source vegetation, and it can make us think about the individual taphonomic processes causing that bias. So that's what's going on in the lab at the moment with two master students and four bachelor students.
1: So you're still quite busy then? Yes, it's
0: it's busy. This sort of work is very time intensive, so the students are very enthusiastic. My students do a lot more than what they should because they want to and it enables them to generate data for themselves and an amount of data that's worthwhile and allows them to address the issues that they're researching. It allows them to address hypotheses hypotheses they've posed or research questions they've asked and this time of year of course is very busy because they're all coming towards the end of their thesis. So I had the whole group yesterday afternoon, high blood pressure, sweaty brows, tension because it's the business end of the thesis, and they're writing up, as I speak, I hope.
1: Yeah, you can only hope?
0: (laughs) I demand. Mike has great expectations.
1: Oh, I do have one other question. What's your dream research? Do you have one?
0: Yes, um, my dream research is going to remain a dream research question or theme, because in the modern world, funding only... Is given for certain types of research and uh, one thing I'd really like to do would be to assess the carpological collections throughout Europe. In my past I spent a lot of time in the former Soviet Union and I worked a little with Felix Velichkevich in Minsk in Belarus, where the Soviet plant macrofossil collections were housed and the Soviets <coughs> Traditionally, in Western Europe, the Soviet paleobotanists were described as splitters. They described lots of new extinct species. And there was a lot of scepticism, particularly when I was at Cambridge in the botany school, about this. But what I've realised from interaction and communication with the Russians is that actually the Western Europeans are conservative clumpers. Because when you look at the populations of certain species in the fossil record you realise that these populations exist from site to site and they have the same morphological features and they're allowing you to make the the species identification so it's real, the work they did is real, they weren't splitters, they were actually identifying extinct fossil types and my work in Western Europe has started to well not started to, over the last 20 years I've looked at assemblages and started to see these extinct fossil types that have been described by the Soviets in the past in sediments from Western Europe. And I'd like to do a lot more work on that. It's very interesting to think about evolutionary relationships, uh, lineages, if you like, um, of fossils. And I've done some work on this on one of my favourite groups, the Potomagetanaceae, the pond weeds, where you have A living species in Japan called Potomigita machianus and you can trace that back to the late tertiary over 2.7 million years ago across the pleistocene Pliocene boundary. You can trace ancestors of that represented in the fossil record by decayed fruits with specific morphologies. All that way back in time over 3 million years. Different species. Species, I'm sure they're different species because you have a population with many individuals with the same morphology and you can look from site to site and see those populations morphologically represented as well. So it's not just a little fragment of a finger bone and we've got a new hominid species. This is a real species. Then we then we get on to the discussion of course the hot potato at the moment is species concept versus transitional form. But my blood pressure is rising, so we'll move on <laughs> rapidly. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
1: And could I ask a simple question? <coughs> what would the relevance be of discovering extinct plant species?
0: Well, you one, you can think about cladistic taxonomy. So there's taxonomy in the three dimensions. And when you introduce the fourth dimension time, you're thinking about cladistic taxonomy. And you can construct cladograms you can look at how extinct species and modern species are related. So this is interesting from, an, from the point of view of the evolution of organisms. But going back to putting archaeology in an environmental and a stratigraphical context, it's interesting from a stratigraphical point of view, because if certain extinct fossil species only occur at certain times, they are biostratigraphic markers, So they can help you date the sediments containing the archaeology. So there's a biostratigraphical element too. So it's an interest in evolution. It's an interest in in biostratigraphy too, and that's the relevance to archaeology. I was wondering,
1: how did you end up in (laughs) archaeology?
0: I've always been in. In archaeology, I've excavated on most of the paleolithic, major Paleolithic um, excavations in Western Europe since the, about the age since my early twenties. Um. So I excavated at Clacton-on-Sea with John Wymer, the very famous Paleolithic archaeologist. I excavated with Mark Roberts at Boxgrove, the hominid site. H- hominid remains, not trace fossils or lithics, but bones. There's a tibia and teeth from Barnum, uh, from. Boxgrove. I excavated at Barnum in the late 80s, and students go to Barnum now. I could bore you, and on and on. Um, I've been to many of the German sites, excavated in Greece, France. So people say, oh, Mike's a botanist and a scientist in the faculty. But I've probably excavated more than most of the paleolithic archaeologists in the faculty. Yeah, Yeah,
1: because I got that wrong as well just now.
0: Yeah. yeah. So my background is ecology, physical geography, with um, a lot of biology and botany. And because I always, as a student, chose my courses on fieldwork, it was obviously physical geography, ecology and archaeology. So I was always in the field, either excavating or looking at plants and landscapes with the physical geography.
1: I have heard from Reliable Source that you have a great passion for animals.
0: Yes, I think this is a a specific point that um, covers a very important point all students thinking about a career ought to consider, and that's the work-life balance. It's so easy in modern academic life to get sucked in and not have a life outside of the university, and that's a very sad situation to get yourself in. Unfortunately, I grew up with animals, Um, I grew up with racing greyhounds. My father bred them and we raced them and we kept them until they retired and died. And then I have also rode horses when I was young and when I finished playing rugby, I played rugby quite quite a high level in Germany, France and England, I decided I'd ride again and I've taken it very seriously over the last 20 years and I now compete at a lowish level cross country, dressage, a little bit of dressage because it's not my thing and eventing where you do dressage, cross country and show jumping all together. And that's my work life balance I leave the university and I deal with my horses, I have three but as I said, academic life these days is very busy so when I'm in the faculty I do a lot but I don't actually think because you just haven't got time to think. So a lot of my research questions and a lot of my ideas about what i can do with my students is that they're actually formulated when i'm riding or grooming or mucking out my horses so i use my work-life balance to escape but i also use it in this busy modern academic life to actually do the thinking because there is no time to think when you're in the faculty emails bureaucracy students meetings teaching
1: yeah and if i would ask you for tips for aspiring academics, would finding the right balance be your answer?
0: Yes, well I've heard that some students have told me that certain senior members of staff say that to be a real academic it's got to be your life. I could very crudely say what I think about that. All I'll say is I have a very negative view on that. Through my academic career I did four postdocs in four different countries. I've been to some of the major departments in the fields um, that, I've, that I'm have that i interested in, I've met senior academics such as Sir Professor Nick Shackleton, the man responsible for oxygen isotope studies, and all these people, I mentioned him because I know what his interest was, all these people had interests outside of their work. So he played a musical instrument in orchestra. Professor Jim Rose at Royal Holloway, he's a train spotter, and I could go on. These, this older generation of academics had a work-life balance and interests outside of work. And it's essential. Don't let any full professor tell you that your life should be your work. Because you might reach 67 and retirement and you might be sitting in your armchair with your glass of wine thinking excuse my language, shit, what did I do with my life? I wasted half of it because I didn't have a work-life balance. So I used some coarse language there. I used it with consideration and i used it for a purpose this is a serious message to younger people
1: well i'm actually quite curious because we always (coughs) post on the instagram that we're going to interview someone and people ask questions and this is one of the questions that came in a lot if you have any tips for aspiring academics that's why
0: i asked it the tip is to develop a number of transferable skills some which some of which you require for work and some of which you require to get that work-life balance operating effectively, so I talk to my students not about only about the content of what I'm delivering to them, but I talk to them about transferable skills, confidence, confidence in to be able to talk about what you, an idea you've developed or some interpretation of a data set that you've made, but also having the confidence to say, "I've done enough, I'm going home and I'm having a break." And it sounds easy to do, but having the confidence and the security to do that is very difficult. It takes a security, confidence, discipline. So a number of transferable skills to say, I've had enough, I'm going home and I'm having a break. And what I say to students is, if you can do that, then often you work more efficiently and effectively and enjoyably. So in seven hours hard work, you can achieve what you would have achieved in two or three days work because you you're so involved in in the workplace and you're not escaping from the workplace so you're not fresh and you're not operating as you should
1: yeah and without all seriousness i think taking breaks is one of the most important yeah things into also staying mentally healthy
0: yeah um well we, we can go into details being healthy is about physical and mental fitness And even though I'm getting old, I've always done sports and competing, particularly show jumping, which is gymnastics on a horse. You have to be physically fit. So I take mental and physical fitness seriously because I want to live. Well, I don't particularly want to live a long time, but when I'm alive, I want to be fit and enjoying life. There's no point in living to 90 if you're led in bed in pain. So mental and physical fitness are things to consider and to take seriously. It's easy when you're younger to think you're going to live forever and you can smoke and drink all you like. But the reality is when you get to almost 60, like myself, the reality is that that's not the case. (laughs) Uncle Michael speaks words of wisdom in this podcast.
1: And besides that, are you training for anything in particular?
0: Well, I I train to avoid killing myself because physical fitness, if you have a disastrous physical accident, fitness gets you through it a lot better than if you're unfit. And show jumping is dangerous. And my horse, Chippy, who I bought from Ireland as a four-year-old, I think four or five years ago, he put me in intensive, intensive care with four broken ribs, punctured lung, fluid on the lung, broken collarbone, broken shoulder blade. So I train to get through accidents like that, but I also am training for a crazy thing too, which I did two years ago in Mongolia, and that's the Mongolian Derby. It's the longest, toughest horse race in the world. It's raced over a thousand kilometres on semi-wild Mongolian horses, and every 40 kilometres you get a new horse who will often very efficiently try and destroy you. So I survived the last race I came 21st out of 45 but I feel that I can get top 10 if the luck's on my side and there's a lot of luck in the Mongol derby so I'm going to go again. I was supposed to race this August but with the virus I've arranged to race in a year's time. So there's a lot of fitness going on, fitness training going on at the moment, running, exercising, riding lots of horses. I'm not thinking about my diet at the moment, but in another six months, um, I will think about my diet. Because, because men and women, I can hear, ah, don't say it, because men and women are not equal. And in this race, women have a great advantage because they're a lot lighter. And there is a weight limit, 85 kilograms with all your kit. So um, I can easily do that weight limit. But to compete with the ladies, I have to really get my body weight down. And even then, I'm heavier than them. So I really work on weight loss and diet nearer the event. So I'm naturally, I'm naturally about seventy-five kilograms, um, if I'm training and not being ridiculous with the chocolate. But when I get to the Mongol Derby, I try and get near as near as seventy kilograms as possible because in the race you lose, you often lose five to seven kilograms so I'm well well below my body rate at the finish line so I finished at about 65 kilograms in the last race which was terrifyingly thin for me yeah so it's a lot of discipline one of those transferable skills I talked about
1: yeah it's something I see returning your work and in your person discipline
0: well oh, thank you yeah take that as a compliment it is yeah
1: <laughs> it is it's a rare trait I would say Nowadays, in my generation, for sure. Yeah, I, I believe so, too. Yeah. Well,
0: don't knock your generation, because in the Mongolian Derby, of course, I'm one of the older riders. There are many young people who are also very uh, dedicated to the cause, and the cause is surviving, and surviving 1,000 kilometers, and getting over the finishing line, and getting over the finishing line with a clean vet certificate, so you've not only ridden but you've ridden sympathetically and the horses are in good shape at the end of every stage so there's a lot of dedicated young people as well so don't put yourself down yeah my job in part in the university is to show you that you are of worth because some people think that they're not and it just takes a sympathetic voice and a little bit of direction from a senior citizen like myself and hopefully it brings a smile to your face and you feel worthwhile and you're achieving what you should achieve. And that's reaching of your full potential. Um, would
1: you say Mongolia is your favorite holiday destination then?
0: That's an interesting question. Um, I said that life in the university can be intense and three or four years ago, I was aware that I was getting sucked into this horrible vacuum of work. Um, so I wasn't sure about doing the Mongol Derby. As I said, I'm a show jumper and cross-country rider and it was my other half who's also a horse rider who's been interested in the mongol derby who got me interested and i still even a year before i rode wasn't thinking of doing the mongol derby but one of the motivating factors was to get away from work so uh, that's partly answering your question i think It was nice to get away from work. Is it my favorite destination? I told you earlier on that I've worked a lot with the Russians, so I've been on the Euro-Asian steppe since 1990 on a regular basis from the Pontic steppe north of the Black Sea in the Ukraine um, over to the Don Valley. I've spent a lot of time in the the Russian Don Valley, which flows into the Sea of Azov. Um, I've been north of the Caucasus. I spent a lot of time south of the Caucasus in Georgia and particularly Armenia. So it was great to go further east along that Euro-Asian corridor and see the steppe. Not as I knew it. I thought the steppe was vast in western Russia and the Ukraine. But when I got out to Mongolia, vast is not a suitable adjective to describe the hugeness of the the steppe and on top of that there's nothing there it's not like when you're in Western Russia where you regularly come into contact with towns there's nothing so when you're out there on your horse it's you and the horse and if you haven't experienced that I can't articulate that feeling but it's very special so it has attracted me since I've been I want to go again But there are many beautiful places in the world. And I do enjoy going back back home. That's been one of the things about the virus. I haven't seen my mum or been back to Britain for over a year. It's killing me.
1: I can imagine. Because how long have you lived in the Netherlands now?
0: 13 years, but I've lived abroad often. Um, I lived in East Germany for a year, Marseille for two years. And then I've travelled a lot as well. So I've worked a lot in the Caribbean even before I came here. I had a Foreign and Commonwealth Office grant, so I was regularly on Montserrat for two or three years.
1: Will you ever go back permanently?
0: Well, that's a difficult one, because I'm now married to a tall, blonde, blue-eyed Dutch lady from North Holland. And she comes from a Catholic family, a large family, in around uh, Enkhuizen, Horen, and Maidenlick. So there's that pool now so it's not my decision it's our decision and we haven't made that decision yet whether we stay in the netherlands or whether we go back to the uk
1: or somewhere completely different
0: no i think uh living on the dutch coast or living where i was born which is very beautiful the cotswolds why go somewhere else there are two nice places to live and of course, when you get older, you've got to think about health care, where you access to pensions, So there are all these crazy things you've got to consider as well. You're not quite as free as when you are younger. You've set deep into the soil, a huge root system, and it's hard to pick that up and relocate. Gosh, sobering, <laughs> made you think about getting old.
1: No, not at all. Yeah, it's made me think about how I want to ask you what your favorite tree is.
0: My favorite tree? <laughs> or is plant. That, is or that a s- European tree or a tropical tree? Anything. Anything goes.
1: Like the greatest tree that you've ever known of.
0: or Okay, I'll I, I answer this in two parts. A, the greatest tree. I will interpret greatest as oldest. I was born on the Cotswold Escarpment on the east side of the River Severn, the second biggest river in Britain, just before it reaches a huge funnel-shaped estuary called the Bristol Channel. And as you come down the Scarp Slope onto the Liassic Lower Jurassic clays in the River Valley, you hit a village called Tortworth. And there's a church there, and a graveyard of course, and traditionally in graveyards in Britain people planted yew trees. Um, but they also planted other trees as well. So in Tortsworth, you've got the Tortsworth chestnut and there's a big debate about how old it is, but it's ancient. So there's ancient trees. It's always nice to see an ancient tree. B, beautiful trees. Gosh, there are lots of beautiful trees. I'll think of a tree that you can see for yourself and you don't have to go to some exotic location. If you go to the Hortus Botanicus, and you walk through the arch from the um, faculty clubs and the entrance to the um, old academic building if you walk through that arch underneath the clock and you walk out into the Hortus just on your left is a big tree Lyriodendron tulipophera it's the tulip tree it's got an interesting palmate leaf which you ought to have a look at but most of all it's beautiful because of its large yellow flower that looks like a tulip So you can go off to see my choice for most beautiful tree, but of course if you go to the Caribbean there are many many beautiful trees. In the Caribbean you have altitudinal vegetation zones, so Montserrat is a mountainous island and you go up into these rainforest belts, so even on a small Caribbean island in the Lesser Antilles you can see xerophytic zone, dry zone, you can go up into the tree fern zone, and then you can go up into the mist forest, the elfin forest. Yes. And then I can talk about the skeletons of trees and beautiful wood. My most beautiful wood, I suppose, I you'd say the English oak. And oak has a beautiful wood, but my favourite European wood would be walnut. I call it my European mahogany because it has a very fine grain like mahogany. And it's a beautiful wood. So that's the entire tree, old and beautiful, and the tree skeleton, the wood, because wood's very beautiful too, walnut.
1: For furniture or
0: to Furniture, yes. I have, I have, all my furniture is antique, but antique juglens regia, walnut. Furniture is extremely expensive, but I have a beautiful soldier's chest made out of walnut. It was a chest with handles. They would carry all their gear in it from... And it's um mid eighteen hundreds. I have that as my coffee table at the home. So I can look at this beautiful grain polished with a nice patina. Beautiful reddish brown colour. That's nice. Looks
1: sounds beautiful. Yeah. I I like my bonsai trees. Yeah. What do you think about bonsai trees? Um Do you have
0: a particular They're opinion manipulated about them? heavily? <laughs> No I I I think they're wonderful we live in a small flat because I like to live on the coast and of course I've, it's expensive so I have a small flat um, no garden and an Englishman ha- must have a garden so the half the kitchen is like a greenhouse so I don't have bonsai trees but uh, at the moment we have two amaranth, amaryllis just about to flare we have um, several cri- Christmas cactus I have a cyclamen, a number of cacti. Um, so I have a, a small botanical garden in my kitchen. That's lovely. To keep me sane. Silence.
1: So if we're looking for a birthday present for you?
0: Birthday for pre- I'm too old for birthdays. <laughs> and uh, birthdays in Britain are celebrated slightly differently than so? in, the, in the Netherlands. How's that? How's that? The English person on his birthday or her birthday he's not expected to buy the whole family or the whole village cakes they expect it to be the other way around. Um and it's not such a big thing I think in Britain it's your birthday, happy birthday, here's a card and here's a present but I find it a little bit over the top the birthdays in in the Netherlands
1: the traditional whole family comes yeah by, remember sits around i, the I couch. told you
0: that i come my dutch family is a catholic family so it's a big family it's a chore it's stressful when it's your birthday <laughs> they descend upon you like a plague of locusts eating everything in sight and drinking everything available and then they disappear and you're left exhausted when it should be a day of celebration it's a day of hell
1: Speaking of excessive drinking, do you have any plans for 2021?
0: (laughs) What? (laughs) I'm going to excessively but slowly drink my champagne stock on a Saturday evening. Mm. Do I... 2021, what's left of it? Get vaccinated. And then be responsible and don't travel all over the world until most people are vaccinated. Gosh.
1: I think that's a good idea yeah
0: so that achievable that's my um that's what i regard as achievable this year and chippy my young irishman is now jumping 120 at home so we're getting quite high so i want to compete him at one meter and start winning some competitions the last time i competed in um show jumping was over a year ago and we won um, our class, it was only 90 centimetres, but we won some money, 15 euros. Here's a funny story for you, if you want me to paint you a picture, we, I wanted a, a jumping horse and the Irish are well known for their jumping horses, so I um, arranged through the Irish Horse Selling Authority to go to Ireland to do a trip around Ireland looking different horses in different stables that were for sale. So we looked at seven horses, but the second horse I saw was Chippy. We arrived in this village called Kilmachthomas, and I was dressed in some traditional, old, early 20th century military riding breeches. And I realised very quickly that that was a mistake, because we were walking around the village and there were bullet holes in the wall. And then there were little gun slits in the wall. And I realised that during the troubles in the 1920s, during the time of the uh, struggle for Irish independence, there had obviously been some problems in this village. Anyway, so I, I observed that and thought, oh dear, maybe I shouldn't be wearing these breeches. And then the man arrives in his Land Rover. And I open my mouth, and I'm English, and I'm dressed in these breeches. And he goes, oh, the horse I'm going to show you is over in a village called Kill. Don't worry, I'm not going to kill you. We went off along these country lanes and then we went for about a kilometre down this track into the middle of nowhere on the edge of this bog. And the first thing we saw was this huge sow, this huge female pig, white with black spots, charging around. And I thought, my God, what's going on here? Anyway, there was Chippy in the barn, all tidy and smart. I sat on him, my jumps and fences and I thought, this is a horse for me. And as we we're, were leaving, he was being led out and he looked round and he gave me a look as if to say, why are you taking me with you? So that was, I thought this is the worst for me. And since then I've been training him and now we're at the level to achieve. But it took a lot of work in the last five years and my trip in intensive care, of course, because he yes. bucked me off when we started training.
1: Well, you've come a long way then.
0: Yeah. The I've got one more young horse in me so I'm thinking of three years buying another four-year-old and training that horse and that will be my last competition horse. Gosh, (laughs) the realisation that I'm getting too old. So hopefully I've got ten years competitive riding and then if I'm lucky another ten years of just pottering around like the Queen, still riding (laughs) in her 90s.
1: At the end of podcast we always give the guests the opportunity to plug something they would like to plug
0: yes uh, i've been given the opportunity to plug something so i'll plug something that benefits the students it's something i do outside the curriculum and it's something i've done since i've been here and that's the botany club so if you are interested in plants come up to the lab and tell alum my number one my lab manager and he will sign you up and you'll get messages telling you when we go in the field So we have half-day excursions through most of the field season and when there isn't a virus circulating the planet, we have an annual field excursion, which is usually five or six days. I usually run it in collaboration with botanists around the world. So in the past we've been to Armenia and I've run it with the head of the Botanic Garden in Yerevan. We've been to north of Rome and I've run it with a colleague from the botany department in the University of Rome. So I strongly encourage you to get involved if you have an interest. And even if you don't have um, an applied interest, i.e. you're studying archaeobotany, it's still nice to come along and be in the fresh air and learn about environments and the plants and inhabit different environments. So that's my plug. Get involved with the Botany Club.
1: That's great. Thank you very much. Also, thank you very much for listening. As always, stay kind, be safe, and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you.
0: I'll try. <laughs>